In this episode, we sit down with Chris Monroe as he walks us through his journey to become an international professional basketball player and some missteps he took along the way. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. In this episode, we're going to take your audience on a journey with you from your time in California around the world, because that's where the next few years of your life were. Yes. While you're in California, you get an opportunity to go play basketball in France. Yes. Tell us how you get the opportunity and how you find out about it. So this, it's actually a, a crazy story. I, I, uh, I found out about it by surprise. Um, my stepfather who had been nurturing me, uh, through my basketball career had never given up on me. And at this point, I think we shared some of my, uh, some of my poor choices in life and some of the opportunities I had squandered, but, uh, he was always working behind the scenes for me. So when I came back from the XBA, I immediately went right back into the skateboarding scene. And at, at this point, this was just so exciting for me. Like all of my friends were, were, uh, were professionals. They were on the big screen. They were moving, uh, progressing the industry forward. And I was, I was happy to return from North Carolina because at this point, uh, once again, the opportunities to score drugs and to party had been taken down to zero. I didn't have any options there anymore. So me returning to San Diego was sort of, uh, for me, the greatest thing that could happen, right? Uh, I now have opportunity and access to drugs and my friends in the party scene. So while I'm doing that, uh, what I don't know is that my stepfather, Zach, is working behind the scenes with some of my old game tape and some of my old uh, AAU uh, moments. And he's sending them to agents and He's talking to overseas people behind the scenes. And one day I'm at, uh, I'm at the house and uh, I'm dead asleep and uh, I'm unaware of what's going on. But my, my parents had actually come over to the house that I was living at. And this was like, a, you know, a typical skateboard house, half a mini ramp in the backyard, uh, empty kegs in the backyard, spray paint, uh, bunch of bunch of young kids you know just pursuing their dream in the, in the San Diego skateboard culture and uh here I am uh this really big athletic kid sort of just fitting in right with them out, out, out of sorts but in sorts right uh and so they, my parents had come over and uh banged on the window and tried to get me up and I you know, slept through it. So you're describing the scene that you probably would never expect someone like your mom or your stepfather to go to, to begin with, even though you're in somewhat close proximity to each other in the city, right? Yes. Did they know what was going on with you that you weren't playing basketball, you weren't practicing, that you were using drugs? Did they have any inclination of any of that? Or did they just see the skateboard lifestyle? I, I think at this point they saw, they saw, they saw both sides. They saw, uh, or they heard me say, which was uh, not un uncommon for me to tell them, hey, I'm going to practice because I knew what I needed to say, right? At this point, it was uh, the manipulation was starting to become uh, perfected, right? I was starting to tell them what they needed to hear or what they wanted to hear 
so that I could do what I wanted to do, right? I think I knew at this point where I was headed, but it was the drugs that were driving the manipulation, right? It was, if I'm telling my parents, hey, I'm practicing and I'm doing this and I'm making them happy, then I have money coming in and then I can go over here and do this. My parents were always aware of my friends, right? Um, before I before I even went into sports, my first love was music and skateboarding and that sort of that counterculture surfing. I spent a great deal of my youth surfing and skating. And so they were always aware of that side, but they never knew, or right at this point, they didn't know the severity right. of what was going on. With the little bit that your stepfather in particular knew, he was trying to get you onto a better path. So he's been working in the background to get you some opportunities internationally. And that's why they're at your door trying to wake you up and get your attention. Yes. What happens? So they try to get my attention. Uh, I sleep through it. I'm, 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 I'm not responsive. Um, I think in, and, and, and in every group of, of friends, you always have like that one friend that your parents despite the the whole group of people gravitate to. And this was a real special individual to me, still is to this day. His name was Adam. And he was sort of the father of all of the shenanigans. Like he was the one who would call it quits or who he was the one who would say enough. Um, and so they got a hold of Adam. And uh, Adam came and pounded on my door and said, hey, you need to pack your bags. We're getting ready to go play. And uh, I'll never forget. I'll never forget almost almost being mad at him and I actually was mad at my parents at this point um, because it was such a surprise to me. But ultimately the first thing that I thought of was not about the opportunity, but about the drugs that I was not going to be able to get. Uh, and the, the fact that I didn't believe, or I knew I wasn't going to be able to be successful without the drugs that I was on. I was so addicted to drugs that I was willing to pass this opportunity up to stay and be comfortable, get high and be around my friends and party. Uh, so it was a nasty morning. I remember griping and grumbling to my family. I didn't want to do this. This is uh, not their decision to make for me. Um, I can't believe they did this. I felt betrayed, you know, and ultimately that was just to mask my want and my concern and my fear for not being able to be high. So you're in such a haze that when you're told about this opportunity, which would be beneficial for you professionally, it would help you financially. It was going to be ultimately turned into a paid gig. Yes. Right. Yet in the moment, all you're thinking about is, hey, there's something in my life that is offering me this temporary or even continuous what you believe to be happiness. Yes. And that's all you can see is how am I going to score once I get to where I'm going? So where were you going? I was going to France. You go directly to France or was there a pit stop? So there was a pit stop. So my, uh, at this point, at this point as a player, I'm underdeveloped, right? I, uh, I'm, I'm immature, uh, both physically and mentally. And, I, and, it, and it's important to realize like the, the mental acuity that you need to be, uh, possess on the floor at that, at that level. Right. It was never a question about the physical. I, I had that, I had that upside. So before I was going to go to France, I was going to stop in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, Arlington, Texas, rather. And this stop was so that I could begin to train with some uh, highly skilled and some other professional players. Who's your connection in, in Fort Worth or Arlington? My connection at this point was my sister. So she had uh, <clears throat> taken a scholarship to the University of Texas, Arlington, and she was very successful there. 
What was her scholarship? Uh, for, for, for basketball. Okay. So she's a talented athlete as well. Yes. She's a very talented athlete. I, she, she has many records at that school. She really created a name for herself. And in doing so, she uh, was able to rub shoulders and cultivate friendships with a lot of amazing athletes. So the idea was that these athletes would take me under their wing and allow me to train with them to get me ready so that I could go to France and produce the kind of results that everybody knew I was capable of, re, uh, of producing. So your sister is leveraging her relationships for your benefit. Yes. Do any of these ballplayers, mentors, coaches know your personal struggles? Does your sister know your personal struggle? I think at this point, my sister understands that something's not right. But I don't think she understands what it is. Right. I was very good at this point at sort of just chopping the things up to being young and crazy. And, you know, this is what's supposed to be happening here. And uh, I, so so I don't I don't know if she knew at this point that I was addicted to drugs. I think she just thought that I had this really artistic flair about myself and, you know, the, the different colored hair and the different outfits and the, the spikes and the the, the weird shoes and, and, and stuff like that. They were all just part of my self-expression. And I, I don't believe that at this point she would have ever offered up any of my eccentric or shortcomings to these people who were getting ready to develop me. Yeah, get you to the next level. Yes. So how is your time in Arlington? Less than productive. So I do, I do, I do spend a considerable amount of time in the gym, but because of my outside activities because of my drug use and because of, of, of the need to be high, uh, to prevent withdrawal, I am really just a shell of who I could be. Right. Uh, a lot of the gym trips were trips where I'm on the edge of withdrawing or, uh, I am withdrawing. So I'm not, I'm not there mentally, physically I'm weak. Uh, I'm not receptive to any of the instruction that I'm being given. And, and, and mind you, these are people who have made enough money to settle down. They don't have to play another, they don't have to play another game in their life. They can, they don't have to have work a job in their life. There are some pretty established athletes. It was a squandered time. When I look back on that time, um, and I, and I think about the people who were willing to, the caliber of people who were willing to work with me. It's tough to swallow. How did you get to Arlington and continue to find drugs? So it's always been easy for me to find drugs because they're remarkably easy to come by, especially if you spend enough time in that culture or you spend enough time around people using like I have. You know, there's that old term, if, if you got it, you can spot it. And it, it really doesn't take much courage to sort of solicit, you know, uh, somebody or ask somebody, hey, you know, do you party at all? Like, you know, there's these really weird sort of run-ins or scenarios you can have with people where you're feeling people out. And, and I think it, I think it comes with just years and years of using, you sort of can read people. And, uh, the more you use, the better you get at reading people and, 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 and uh, recognizing signs of, of use. And then it's go from there. And so it began just for me, like normal, n normal scoring, method. Like I would just ask somebody, Hey, you know, Hey, do you, or, or like, Hey, do you, you got any, you got any pills? I got, I got a shoulder injury. Right. Just stuff like that. Right. You know, and then it, one thing leads to another and then it's like, do you got any weed? And then you just sort of feeling people out. And, and I think, I think that's how a lot of my 
discoveries and drugs and and, and and circles happened. It was just like a raw solicitation. It's going to be a little bit different when we get to France. So, so tell me about how does the time in Arlington come to an end? Did you have a set date that you knew you were going to France? I did. I had a date. Uh, I, I can't remember the date, but I knew that I knew that we were here for a certain amount of time training and then it was time to get the passport. We went and got the passport and then it was off and then it was off to to Paris. And so I spent my time training for a little bit. Like I said, you know, lackluster time. Spent the time at my sister's house, got my passport, and then and then it was time to leave for France. What was it like landing in France? Who was there to receive you? <laughs> uh, landing in France was was actually scary. Uh, this was right around. This was right after 9-11. Uh, so, and it was a, I think it was a couple years after 9-11, but you know, we were still on, they were still on heightened alert. And so when I, when I landed in France, uh, I remember, uh, we were, we flew into Charles de Gaulle and, and, uh, I got off the plane and there were guards everywhere with machine guns, f- dogs. There were just like, it, it really looked like a, like a, like a, an action movie scene. I, I was sort of nervous. Uh, but we landed and then looked around. I was a little nervous. Didn't didn't really know where I was at. But uh, there was this little lady holding a, a a sign and it had my last name on it. And uh, I said, "Wow, you know." And uh, I walked over to her and she she spoke very little English, but I knew that was my last name. And so I figured, you know, this was where I go. And we hopped into this really tiny car. I'll never forget. It was a, a Peugeot, the first time I had ever seen any anything like this. I didn't know they made cars this small. And uh, I think my bag barely fit in the trunk. I was going to ask, did your legs fit in the car? <laughs> no. Like, knees I was just knees, knees to the chest, full on, you know. But at this point, you know, I'm, I'm used to squeezing into cars. This is just a new adventure for me. Like, hey, can I get into this one? Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, so she picks me up and uh, we... We, we set off and, and we get, we get to uh, Sable and it's just a really cool place. Um, really tiny community, something like you would see out of a, like a, almost like a, like a ancient, not, or a, a medieval, not like a, what time period am I looking for? Like the, it's a lot of cobblestone, yeah. a lot of like brick stone, like it, it was beautiful. And there was just a small community. Uh, with a little inner city downtown, and she drove through the streets, and we ended up into this 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 house, and she told me to make myself at home, and and this 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 was my uh, my host family, this was the family that was going to feed me and get me on my feet and teach me or show me my way around town. So, great opportunity, lovely town that you're in, great views from. Were you in a loft? I was in a loft. Uh, at first. And so looking back, I'm able to realize how beautiful of a place this was. It was, it had this winding staircase. I mean, like this old winding staircase and it went up and it was a a flat and it it, it was like everything you see in these movies. Right. And, uh, at this point, at, at this point, the, the drug use, my drug use is at an all time low. And so I'm irritable and, uh, I'm uh, less than pleased and I have a terrible attitude and uh, I instantly start complaining like this place is too small for me. Uh, I, I can't believe that you guys have got me in this place. Look at this TV. So I was a real jerk. I was a real jerk. And uh, so they, they, they ended up moving me from that into another loft, a much bigger loft. This is a point where like, 
I'm weaning down and weaning down from from Texas all the way into France, and now it's getting to a point where where I am like scratching and clawing to stay at an even keel. So you're in this picturesque town. You've met some people that, looking back, you understand were very generous, welcoming families trying to show you around town. But in the moment, all you can see is kind of your despair of not being able to get the drugs that you were used to. So before I ask you about how you ultimately get something to get by with in France, talk to me about showing up at a basketball court for the first time. So that's what you're there for. Yeah. Before they gave me my original loft, I had uh, this sobering moment. Mind you, uh, when I was on the plane to France, I got extremely drunk. I, I didn't have, uh, I, I needed I needed to ke- cut the edge. So I was drinking heavily on the plane. Uh, when I landed and we got into the town, uh, immediately the next day with a hangover, I got a physical. And after my physical, uh, the coach told me that it was time to get in the van, that they had a game. I looked at them and I was like, look, I haven't brought any shoes. And, and so here, here's, a, here's a telltale sign of how prepared and where I'm at in my life right now. So I'm leaving to go play professional ball overseas and I don't bring a pair of shoes. All I have is a pair of Chuck Taylors. Wow. So what was the coach's response to a guy who's shown up to play professional ball and he doesn't even have a pair of basketball shoes? Of course, his, his first his first remark was why? And I, you know, oh, well, I thought I'd have time to go buy some. I, all my shoes were worn out. He just looked at me and sort of, you know, don't worry about it. We got a lot of people here who wear their, your, your, shy, your, your, your shoe size. And I was like, damn. Like, you know, I'm, I'm hungover at this point. Uh, I'm getting in a van and I'm going to go play. Something I did not expect. I thought that there would be this slow introduction. I would meet the players. Uh, I would maybe practice a few times and then, you know, nope. They handed me somebody's shoes and said, put them on. We want to see you run for five minutes. So probably jet lagged. Yes. You've changed time zones. Yes. Probably didn't get a good night's sleep. No. You've been poked and prodded that morning. Yes. And you're hungover. Yes. You're going to go play your first game. Yes. How'd it go? It, it went well, you know, and that's just sort of how how things had been unfolding for my life, right? I, I excelled where I probably shouldn't have excelled. And for what reason, I don't know. But, you know, I think I played four minutes, four or five minutes, s- scored a few points, grabbed a couple rebounds, uh, showed them that I was physical and strong and that I could hang with the big bodies. And, and, and uh, they pulled me out and, and they, they told me, okay, good. Uh, I, took my sh- I took the shoes off and gave the shoes next, next to the guy who had taken his shoes off. Wow. Real, real, real story. Yeah. He put those shoes back on, went back in the game, and I just sat there with no shoes on for a little while uh, until my chucks were brought to me. And then we got back in the van and, and went back. You got a contract out of it. I did. The next day, they decided to offer me a contract. And so I signed. You are officially a professional basketball player. You're getting paid money yes. to play a sport that you love, that you're great at. Yes. And yet in the moment, you still feel despair, discouraged. Why and what did that lead you to? Like, it's just an overwhelming sense of doom. Uh, anybody who's ever been addicted or has a problem with substances knows that 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 the, the only important thing in your life is how you how you can continue to ride the wave, right? How how can you continue to to 
to score? How can you continue to uh, not fall back into some sort of normalcy or withdraw or wh whatever you want to call it? So that's really was my consuming thought at this point. I, I don't think there was a waking moment where I wasn't aware that my time was short. Um, Your time as a professional athlete or both at this time. I think what you wanted to say was just at my time short as like uh, going into withdrawal or whatnot. Uh, at, 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 at this time, it's, it's, it's beer. It's, it's a extremely strong beer that's helping me just edge the, the lack of like powerful drugs that I was taking like opiates or Xanax or, or Coke. Uh, and I think it was called Bravaria. I remember the name of it. It was a, it was a, the nastiest tasting thing, but it was strong and it, it, uh, it either knocked me out or it, uh, it, it cut the edge off a little bit. So, so I immediately knew what I had to do, right? I had to find somebody. I had to find somebody who looked a little rough around the edges. I had to find somebody who maybe, uh, didn't carry himself as well as, you know, that I had to find and seek out somebody that I thought used drugs. And most people in France aren't going to talk to you in English necessarily. No, they're not. So this is, so, so there's two strikes against me. The other strike is that I'm in a small village. I'm literally, I, you know, it's, it's a town, but it's a, it's more of a village, right? Like it, it doesn't, it, by by looking at it, you would never think that anything would be there. Right? And this is Sable? Sable, yes. Sable, yes. Sable. You would never think that anything, like anybody, there would not be a single drug user in there. Every It's just this, uh, it's this picturesque town with a nice river running through it and like everybody's happy. And I'm, and, and I'm on the outside looking in like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. This is not going to last. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I look, I look for days. I finally get my eyes on this, this, I don't know how old he was. He, he might've been like 22. He's just a small, pale, scrawny kid. Uh, didn't look, didn't look anything like the normal resident there. And I knew that that was my opportunity. Right. And so, uh, of course I approached him and he didn't speak a lick English. So it was more like hand gestures at this point. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know how to say cocaine. I didn't know how to say pills. I didn't know, but I knew what rolling a joint looked like, sure. right? And I, I was a weed smoker and, and, and at this point, anything will do. So I, I, I'm I doing this and, and I'm doing this and he's kind of nodding to me and, and uh, I show him where I live. And uh, a few moments later, you know, I'm, I'm up at my flat and, and I get a knock on the door and uh, it's the kid. And I, uh, I open the door and like, I tell him, thank you as best I can. You know, I'm like, well, I'm just excited. He's there and I'm, I'm excited to see what he's got. Right. And, uh, he pulls out this square, this Brown square. And at first I think it's heroin. And I'm like, Oh no. Like, I, you know, like there, there are certain things like that you just never want to address or, you know, like, and at this point, like I knew, and I had heard horror stories of it. So like, I knew like, Jesus, no, like I was, and then when he, then when he, he broke it up and he, 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 he showed me and he, he brought out a pack of rolling tobacco and he sprinkled it in the rolling tobacco. And, uh, I, I found out that it was hash and I had always heard about it, but I had never, I had never really, I had never done it. And it was the most God awful thing I had ever 
experienced. It was like this really down low, and then the tobacco gave you a headache, and it was it was terrible. Yeah. It's the only thing you could get. It's the only thing I could get. For people who aren't familiar, hash is essentially a product of the cannabis plant, but it's um, essentially... It's not the good stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's the resin is yes. maybe a better word. It's, a, yes. it's the resin from the plant, and it's not... Uh, certainly, as you said, not the good stuff. It doesn't have the same potency. It was the last thing on earth I was looking for. Uh, but just like any other addict, when you when you have a need to alter your state, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what it is. You're going to do whatever you need to do to sort of escape. And I think that uh, that was my biggest purpose at this point was trying to figure out how I could escape. So strong beer and terrible hash is the best that you can find in Sable. How is all of this affecting your professional career? It's killing it. It, you know, um, there were, there were times where some of the, the teammates would invite me over and, and, uh, I'd be waiting on the kid, uh, to bring me some hash. And so I didn't make it to the, to the event or to, to the, to the person's house. Uh, I was rarely seen with the players because most of my time was spent so drunk that I really couldn't be around them. Right. It would, it would have thrown up red flags immediately. Uh, I spent a lot of the, a lot of my time in, in, in the pubs getting drunk, uh, hoping that I would sort of run into somebody who had, a uh, some, some different sort of drugs, but I, that never happened for me. Um, so I, I was there, but I was never a part of the unit. I was there and I was, I, looking back, it, it must've seemed like I was just somebody who showed, who just showed up when it was time to practice. Um, I never participated in any of the team events. I spent most of my time, uh, drunk. It's so interesting. When you talked about your college career, one of the things you talked about was wanting to find that sense of a team camaraderie. And here you are in a new country and you sure could use some friends, but you were isolating yourself because you were still in this substance seeking behavior. Yeah. So, so in the, so in the beginning when I was going to college, right, it's, it's important to remember that pre-college and post high school, I wasn't using, I was, I was sort of still, I was there, right. I, I knew, I knew the benefits. I knew what could happen. I knew the possibilities and I was looking forward to them. You know, you know, when I, when I got to college and I, and, and that didn't happen for me, I think something triggered in me and, and I, uh, that's when I started and I, I turned down a different road, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting fact that, or an interesting point that you bring up. So, so now I'm here where a lot of these guys are trying to embrace me and I'm not picking my phone up. I'm not answering the door. Uh, I'm roaming the streets at like, I'm, I'm, I'm roaming the streets drunk at like three 30 in the morning, just sort of by myself and lonely. Um, and, and, and really like, I wanted to go back looking back. I, I wanted to go back because my life was hard in France as a drug addict. My life was hard. You wanted to come back to the States and be at a place where you could get what you wanted. Yes. So how does your time in France come to an end? So we had a couple games and, and, and a few games and, and, and I played and, and we had, you know, the season drew on and drew on. And finally it got to a point where I just wasn't receptive 
to anything that was going on. I never expressed, but inside, I think I was self-sabotaging. Like I, I, uh, I remember several times in practice, I would run a play or do things the wrong way or lip off to the coach. And, and all this comes from being irritable and also wanting to be back home. I mean, I could, I guess the easiest way to, to express what was going on was I did not want to be there. I did not want to be in France because I couldn't get high. As you look back on that time now, if drugs had not been a part of your life at that point, do you think you would have seen it differently? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, absolutely. W no, no question. So, uh, although I'm grateful for where I'm at right now and, uh, I, uh, I embrace every step of my journey, uh, all the way up until present. I do believe that I do believe that if drugs weren't a part of my story at that point, I would have excelled past everybody's expectation. There was always, there was, there was always this prevailing thought that, that if I would have just gotten it get together, that I had all the intangibles, I had the speed, I had the strength, I had the height, I had, I had the IQ when I chose to use it. So, so, so absolutely. So France comes to an end and you come back to Texas, back to live with your sister. Yes. Okay. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about some pretty close to your heart topics that uh, we've been working towards for a long time. And it's going to have to do with family members and yes. some dynamics there that uh, will really pull at the heartstrings and I imagine will be hard to even talk about. But before we get there, I'd like to end this episode as we always do with uh, something that you learned in prison, because here we are in 2023 sitting together in 2015, you received a 120 month or 10 year sentence in federal prison. And so by many accounts, we shouldn't even be sitting here together. Um, but what you have shown us is that even in a place of despair where a lot of people can lose hope, you turn things around uh, from the moment that you decided even before walking into prison, but through this process of facing that federal charge and making the most of your time in prison, I want you to share with the audience something that you learned in prison that you carry with you through today that's helped you become the success story. Something that has been really affecting me here lately uh, and something that I'm, I almost had, or I'm almost lost sight of was that you need to be aware of the things that you allowed to play in your head. So I spent some time in the drug program. And one of the things that helped me more than anything, uh, looking back in my journey in prison was being aware of my self-talk, right? What you allow to go on in your head is extremely important. That loop, that feedback loop that you have, uh, is either going to work for you or against you. And you know, it, it wasn't until I found out what self-talk was that I was able to look back and see that I had a destructive loop. But if I were to tell you one of the major things that helped me change was the changing of that loop, right? So it went from a positive or a negative loop, like, oh, life's, uh, life's holding out on me. I changed that into I'm holding out on life. Let me get back to life, right? So, so, so you, you got to sort of be aware of what you're speaking inside your head, because once that message changes, the outward changes. And so if I were to give somebody any, any shred of hope of coming out in a positive light from prison or going into prison, 
I would ask them to examine their self-talk and, and really, really get honest with yourself about what it is that you tell yourself on a daily basis and if it's positive or not. And if it's not positive, then how do we change it? Chris, this is what makes me so excited to share your story is it's paradigm shifts like that where you truly understood in the moment, here's what it's going to take for me to change the rest of my life. And you've lived that. And as we've progressed through kind of some of the more difficult years, I'm so excited to tell the next chapters of your story where we get to not just a place of hope, but a place that we can show people, I made the changes and it's affected my life in exponential ways. And, and you're giving people hope that no matter how many opportunities you've had that have slipped away because of your own choices that you didn't make the most of, if you're still breathing today, you have an opportunity to make a different decision about what tomorrow looks like Absolutely. or the rest of today looks like. So thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thank you for watching this episode. We hope you found the content to be helpful. If you have friends that you think might benefit from hearing this content, please share this with them. You can find this podcast wherever podcasts are found.